0: Good evening. We will go ahead and, and start here. So uh, we're taking a detour tonight. Normally we've been going through the New Testament just completely in order, and we're at the end of the Gospels now. But about a month ago, about a month ago, when we were in First Peter during the uh, AM worship service, we were on this text here, uh, this First Peter one twenty four that referring to Jesus' death. And Peter wrote this, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. We know that to be the crucifixion. And then the text tells us the purpose for his death. And it's right here, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So the purpose of Christ's death here is that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So that purpose has to do with transformation, doesn't it? In other words, it's not just about forgiveness. The purpose of Christ's death is more than forgiveness. That was the point. Dying to sin means sin loses its grip on me. And I begin to be set free. And you see, and the opposite, of course, is what? And live to righteousness. So, praise God, because of Christ and His work on the cross, we can have our lives rebuilt. They can be changed. We die to sin and live to righteousness. And so, I was making the point that it's very significant that the cross work is more than just forgiveness. And when we talk about being saved... That means more than just being forgiven. And uh, I, I said a few other things about some of the terminology that we use at Sunday morning and said we'd pick that subject up on Wednesday night. And so, so that's, that's what we're doing here. But the other thing I have to say about this text, of course, is by his wounds you have been healed. The healing is described here in this text it's not talking about physical healing though god works miracles and god still heals us no no doubt about that but in this text the wounds that you've been the healing is dying to sin and living to righteousness for you were what you were strained like sheep that's the healing you were strained like sheep but now you have returned To the shepherd and overseer of your souls. It's just a a wonderful passage. It's a wonderful thing. You know, brothers and sisters, Jesus Christ is the shepherd and the overseer of our souls. I mean, what do we have to fear? (laughs) He watches over us. So, I can't help but talk about more of the text there. But, But this idea that Christ's work on the cross accomplishes more than just forgiveness is, is going to be our subject here tonight. And this is how we got there. So, so on your notes there, non-lordship theology, what is, what's this non-lordship theology matter? Well, the term lordship means authority over, and we think non-lordship theology is a significant error. Okay, And so that's what we're going to discuss tonight, and we're going to discuss uh, what is the best way to help people see that this type of theology is an error. So that's that's what we're going to do. So non-lordship theology teaches that a person may be saved, may be a Christian, assured of going to heaven, but have no fruits, no fruits or actually just be living in rebellion and sin. But this theology teaches, well, that person can still be saved, they're still a Christian. Jesus is this person's Savior, but he's not this person's Lord. So they kind of divide Jesus, Savior, and Lord, and this person is interacting in a relationship with Jesus as Savior, and usually by that they mean forgiveness of sins only. This person is interacting with Jesus as his Savior, meaning forgiveness of sins, but he's not in a relationship with Jesus as his Lord. Okay, that's kind of how the thinking goes. And often sometimes the person won't submit to authority and The illustration has been used, who's on the throne? You have a throne in your heart and either you're sitting on it or Jesus is on the throne and uh, that type of thing. So now why do non-lordship proponents believe such a person is saved who has no no fruits? So why why do non-lordship proponents believe that such a person is saved that has no fruits or is actually living endlessly in rebellion? Why, why, would, they, why would they think this person is saved? Well, the argument usually goes, goes like this, is that God promises salvation on the basis of faith alone. And amen, we love that, right? And John 5.24 would be one example. Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes in him who sent me, what? Has eternal life. It's a wonderful faith alone statement, isn't it? You believe in him who sent Christ, and he does not come into judgment, but what? But has passed from death to life. Okay? This isn't a process, it's completed. This person who believes, like this text describes, has passed from death to life. That's promise of the gospel. So so God promises salvation on the basis of faith alone. And so they would insist that this person has believed in Christ. Thus, they must be saved since God keeps his promises. Now, the key thing there is the word insist that this person has believed. Because a promise is true. If you believe according to what this text is saying, you have eternal life right now. So they are insisting this person's believed in Christ and thus they must be saved since God keeps his promises. And God promises eternal life. And if you have eternal life, you cannot be lost. Well, let's ask another question then. Why do the non-lordship proponents insist that this person has believed in Christ? This is a different question now. They are insisting that this person has believed. Well, usually because the person says they've believed and the person has done the prescribed formula. You know, the popular... The popular, popular ones are, well, made a decision for Christ, or I asked Jesus into my heart, or I, I prayed the sinner's prayer, or I responded to an altar call. I've done, the, I've done that. And so what non-lordship advocates will say is, is these, this person has done the prescribed things And that is considered as irrefutable evidence that they have believed in Christ. And since they have believed in Christ, these texts, like John 5, 24, apply. Now, where we're going is, is just because a person says they believe in Christ doesn't mean they really do. And that's where this discussion is going to go. But this is... This is uh, I was taught this kind of theology when I when I was first converted actually a long a long time ago and such evangelistic methods often produce significant numbers of people who are called Christians and told they are saved forever when it's possible that that they're not so so that's the that's an overview of the non-lordship theology now so so now, then, we have to explain i'm I'm on number four on your outline now so so with non lordship theology you you have to explain how do you explain all these Christians that have no fruits? How do you explain American Christianity where i don't know what the numbers are thirty forty percent of people are supposedly Christians in America and and there's no evidence in many of their lives how do you explain how do you explain this and now there's three ways that this has been explained uh, two of them are not correct well non non lordship theology the free grace movement explains it this way these christians are saved and will go to heaven and often that teaching is associated with what's going to happen is they're going to lose their rewards. They're still going to go to heaven, but they're going to lose their rewards. And we won't turn to the passage that's 1 Corinthians 3.12 talks about being saved, but as through fire. How many of you know that text? Some of you know that text. They'll go to that text and say, well, they're Christians, they're saved. They're just not going to lose, they're going to lose all the rewards. And that text is not talking about individual believers, but we're not going to go there. But they're going to be saved. Now, the other thing that this non-lordship movement does is all the passages that warn that when people live in sin, unrepentant, indefinitely, that they will not inherit glory For various reasons, the non-lordship folks say those passages don't apply anymore. This person is a believer because he did the prescribed thing and he's living his life in adultery. But these warning passages, and let's take a look at a few of those, they don't apply. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6, 9. Paul, writing to the Corinthians, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, that's a pretty strong statement. If your life is just characterized by unrighteousness, Paul says, you know, you need to know you're not going to make it. You're not going to make it to inherit the kingdom of God. And he, and he even goes further says, do not be deceived. And then he lists... You know, like many of us live this way. God has saved us out of this. And and he lists, you know, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers, what will inherit the kingdom of God. So if you're living this way, it doesn't matter what you profess. If you're living this way, you should not have assurance of salvation. So this is a warning, you see, to a Christian life that has no fruits and actually has negative. So that's a warning. Now, we've got to read verse 11, okay, because we believe in the gospel, right? Look at that. And such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. Notice this. Notice the multiple aspects of salvation here. It's not just you were forgiven. Look at what it says. You were washed. That's transformation. That's, that's cleaning up your mind. You were washed. You were sanctified. That means you've been put on a road to become more like Jesus. You were washed. You were sa- Oh, praise God, you were justified. Now, there's where your forgiveness is. Your forgiveness flows from what justification means. And all of that was what? In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not only that, the Spirit of God is now involved in your life. Right? By the Spirit of God. Now, that's conversion. And it includes all of those aspects, doesn't it? And and we will reason that all of those things go together. You have all of them or you don't have any of them. And that's where we would part with the non-lordship theology people. They are arguing that they have this. You were justified. Okay, and forgiveness is part of that. But you don't necessarily have all these other things happening in your life. Okay, but see, so these are these are the warnings. Um, and so there's, that was Corinthians. Let's do Galatians. Uh, now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry, dissension. It just describes our human race and our lost condition. Divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, and he says the same thing, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who those who do or practice such things what will not inherit the kingdom of God. So these warnings are very are very significant. And there's another warning in Ephesians, it's the same. Uh, for for you may be sure of this, I think I got the ESV translation here. Yeah, you may be sure of this that everyone who is and there's the, the vice list. And this one even includes covetousness. Remember Pastor Nathaniel's message last Sunday during the adult Sunday school class? He goes, you know, I've never been in a church that's disciplined anybody for covetousness. That, yeah, I mean, anyways, that's a sidetrack, but... Um, that is an idolater who has no inheritance in the kingdom of God and Christ. What, let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore do not be partakers with them. So these are the warning passages to say that a person that is, falls under these, oh, there's so much we could discuss here. We're not talking about perfectionism, but these passages are talking about a way of life. Okay, If your way of life just goes on and on, month after month, year after year, and it's this way of life, these passages are saying you're probably lost. You're you're probably not a Christian. You're probably not converted. But the non-lordship folks have convinced themselves that these passages don't apply. Once you've believed and once you say you've believed, somehow these passages don't apply. Well... These passages do apply. Anybody reading Paul's letter to the Ephesians would know these passages apply. So, so how, how, that's one way these, uh fruitlessness is explained that way. Number five, there's another explanation that is given for fruitlessness. And that's number five here is the lose your salvation theology. Now this is different. Now, some of you know some of these terms and some of you don't. This is consistent Arminian theology. Lose your salvation. In other words, consistent Armenian theology says once saved, always saved is not true. You can be saved one period of your life and then you can lose that salvation. So they have their explanation of this fruitless Christianity is that people lose their salvation. And they would say, that theology would say, these Christians did believe, and they were saved, and they, and they died, and they died while they were saved. If they died while they were saved, they would go to heaven. But they have fallen away from the faith, they no longer believe in Christ, and they've lost their salvation. And if they die now, they're going to be lost. Okay? Uh, there's a lot of churches that teach that view. I'm not saying that these people under number five are not Christians. don't that's a separate subject, but but in other words, this method, number five there, this is explained the fruitlessness is explained by saying you were saved and you lost your salvation, okay? And so they would say, interestingly enough, that those warnings that I've just read you are true. You see, the non-lordships people say, well, those warnings don't apply. This group of, this group of people, the consistent Armenians, say, no, the warnings do apply. And, and what's happening is you've lost your salvation. You need to be saved again. I've heard a counter or uh, a kind of way to put that circumstance would be you're just a backslider, you know, as opposed to losing everything. Yeah, uh, that term has been used a lot. You're, yeah, and, and, and Christians do backslide. There, there are times we do fall into sin, but the question is what happens when you're in that state? Are you miserable? Are you under conviction of sin? Does a shepherd come out finally and grab a hold of you by the collar and bring you home? What, we, what we'll see here, um, Richard, is the third option, which I'm going to call effectual grace, says if you're backslidden, you know what's going to happen? The shepherd's going to leave the other 99 sheep and he's going to go after you and he's going to lay hold of you and he's going to bring you back to the flock. You see, Christ will lose nothing. And uh, the other thing that's going to happen, according to Hebrews 12, is the Father, now if you're in Christ, God's become your Father. And when you read Hebrews 12, we'll get to that. But the Father is going to discipline us. So when someone's in a backslidden condition, man, we, we have all been there, right? Absolutely. The question for them is, Well, how do you feel in that condition? Oh, I'm miserable. I want to get out. You know, is there a way out of this? In other words, are they convicted of sin when they're in that condition? Because the Holy Spirit does that. The Holy Spirit will not allow us indefinitely to go that way. So, So, I mean, you know, the classic example, of course, David with his adultery with Bathsheba, right? He was in a backslidden condition for at least six months, and he was covering his sin. He was defending himself and everything else. But when we read Psalm 32 and 51, he says, "Day and night your hand was heavy upon me," and he was just he was in a bad way. And finally, what the Lord brought him back. And so we're going to argue, Richard, that the third the third option here. Is God is involved in our lives and He brings us back, okay? And that's called effectual grace. So, so uh, <clears throat> on number five, there the lose your salvation theology. They will say that those warning passages are real, okay? So, you know, if you had a choice to be in the non lordship camp or the lose your salvation camp. It's probably safer. I hate to say it because the non-lordship people have some things right (laughs) about justification and forgiveness and even the right kind of eternal security. They have those things right. But the error they have is so dangerous. It is so dangerous. It tells a person that he can just continue living like this. And he's not going to fall under those warnings. So it's really difficult for me to say what is safer from the point of the souls of people. Because if you're in if you're in number five there, that church is going to warn you that you need to repent or you're going to be lost. You see what I mean? You need to come back to Christ. You need to repent. You need to ask for His forgiveness. They're going to tell the people that. See, whereas Anyways, you got you got my point. I, I don't know which is which is more you know dangerous, uh, James. Uh, hand him the microphone right there. Right you there. <clears throat> so with this second camp here in the lose your salvation theology, yeah. do would you say any of those people could possibly believe in the uh, theology of being elect, or is that can you not reconcile the two of those together? Usually, <laughs> usually those that are in the lose your salvation. Category are consistent Armenians, and so they would not—they would not believe in election in the sense of unconditional election that we would. Okay, that's kind of what I mean by a consistent Armenian. It, the the Armenian—it's uh, too much of a sidetrack. Okay, <laughs> uh, but very unlikely that they would. Okay, so the third option of what—what do, what do we do with? with uh, explaining Christians whose faith doesn't produce any works. The third option, I've given it the name effectual grace. And effectual grace theology believes in this expression, the preservation of the saints. In other words... Once saved, always saved. Well, how does that work? Well, because God preserves us. God is involved in our lives. The Holy Spirit is involved in our lives actively and He preserves us. So when we start going astray, He comes after us and He preserves us and brings us back. And we call that or at least I call it, it's my expression, effectual grace. So, now, what about the fruitless professing Christians then? We would say they never did believe in Christ. It's not that they were saved and lost. It's that they never were saved. They never really believed in Christ to to begin with. And, um, Whatever they did was not saving faith. And, and in defense of that position, the scriptures teach very clearly that it is possible to be in this category of having a superficial, non-saving faith. And I'll just throw up a few texts in the Gospel of John. It, it's, a, it's a theme through the Gospel of John, and I'm in John chapter 2 here, Uh, Verse 22 and uh, 23. Um, Verse 23. Let's do verse 23. Now when Jesus, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, look at what it says. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them. Because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. See, see the, the, there's, there's, this is not saving faith that's described here. It's really interesting. It, if you go through the Gospel of John, this all, this all fits together, but it's a sign-based faith. They, they saw him work miracles, and they're impressed, and they believed in him but it wasn't a saving faith about why he really came to save them from their sins and uh so this this is not saving faith here and 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 so um and then of course look, let me throw up another one um John John 8 yeah John 830 this is this is interesting uh same type of thing. And as he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, here it is, if you abide in my word, you are what? Truly my disciples. So if they really believed in him, it's going to be manifested by abiding in His Word. See that? That's going to be the test. Do they abide in His Word? If you abide in My Word, then you are my, really My disciples. But if you blow off My Word and don't live in it, you don't, don't think you're one of My disciples. And of course, what happens in this passage, well, let me read the rest of it. What's going to happen when you abide in his word? Look, it's going to transform your life. And you will what? Know the truth. What? And the truth shall set you free from sin. Well, they couldn't abide in his first statement. They answered him and said, we are Abraham's offspring and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free they were, what do you mean? We're free men. They, they, they took insult just at the suggestion that maybe they weren't free. They're not doing a very good job of abiding in his word, is he? They, they can't get through his first... I mean, it's a wonderful... They took offense, but it's a wonderful promise, right? You shall know the truth. I need to be made free. I, you know, they, they don't see that. They answer, Okay, so what did Jesus say? Well, Jesus answered and said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Oh, that's the kind of freedom. He's not talking about freedom from the Roman government and the occupying Romans in Jerusalem. You shall be made free from sin. Now they're going to get even more offended because he said, you guys are sinners. And you need to be set free. Actually, you guys are slaves to sin. And you need someone to come and set you free. And Jesus is saying what? I'm that person. Right? I'm that person. Praise God, right? None of us would be here tonight. It wasn't for Him setting us free. I'd never be caught dead in a church. (laughs) So, um, so, anyways, what are we talking about? Well, we're talking about, yeah, they had some kind of superficial faith. Many believed in him, and, uh, but by the time they get to the end of the chapter, they're picking up stones and they want to kill him. So, that faith didn't last very long. So, in the effectual grace theology, is there's this category of people that we have to interact with that will profess faith at times, But it's not the real thing, and so they do. They fall away from a profession of faith. They don't fall away from the faith because they were never in the faith. See see the distinction. And if you go to First John, John actually says that they went out from us. Why? Do you guys know the text? They were not of us. That's right. They went out from us because they never were of us. They were not of us. Right. See. So. So that's how, in in uh, the effectual grace theology, we would say the, the the no fruits. The reason is they were never saved in the first place. Is that? Are you guys you guys with me? Yeah. Second Timothy three five. Oh yeah, yeah. So, um, okay. So. Uh, so uh, 6b, we're, we're I think we're at 6b on on the outline there. Saving faith is known not by what a person professes, but by the fruits and works. And of course, James, you know James's famous statement, "I will show you my faith what by my works." In James chapter two, I won't turn to that passage, but. That summarizes what we're saying. I'll show you my faith What by my works. My works don't save me. My faith is what saves me. But if my faith is the real thing, it will lead to the production of works. Okay. You know, and, and so that, you know, James 2 comes into this. So, now, we have this expression that I'm using, effectual grace. And what We believe is, solution three here, effectual grace, is that we have a different definition of grace than those first two solutions. Uh, Our understanding of God's grace is that it is powerful, it is enablement, it actually changes things. And it influences us. That's the concept of grace. And as we go forward, I'm going to to seek to show you that from Scripture. But I want to drop another significant thing, another expression in your mind that comes from Paul. And that is Paul's use of his under phrases. And just stick with me. You'll be able to get this. Paul, Paul uses this expression multiple times to be under something. And in Romans, people are under multiple things. They're under sin. Uh, Romans 3.9, What then? Are we Jews better better off? Not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Gentiles, are under sin. Okay. Now, what does it mean To be under sin. Well, he shows us what it means. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. Well, for you theologians here, well, that's that's forensic righteousness. That's not talking about... You see, where I'm going here, to be under, in Paul's theology, is to be under the influence of it. Okay? So... Well, let's see, what about the next thing, to be under sin? Oh, no one understands, no one seeks God. Now that's experiential. So to be under sin is to have a mind and heart that doesn't understand. And to be under sin is to have a mind that won't seek God. You see what I'm saying? Under sin is you are influenced by it in these ways all have turned aside. Now that's what it means to be under sin. Sin influences us such that we turn aside. You see, all these things are experiential. So to be under sin means you are under the power and the influence of it. And of course, when we're under sin, that's the direction our life goes. And the older we get as we grow up, if Christ doesn't save us, the further we go. So, under sin means I'm under the power and influence of it. Now, why is that so important? Because we have to define under grace. And guess what that means? Under grace means we're under the power and the influence of grace. That's effectual grace. And uh, I can't go through this without talking about the law. So there's one of his under phrases: under the influence. Um, Romans 6.14. For sin, what? Shall not have dominion over you. That's the under sin of Romans 3.9, isn't it? To be under sin... Sin does have dominion over us. We are enslaved to it. And that terminology is going to be used here in a moment Romans 6. And Jesus said he was a, practiced sin as a slave of sin. Same concept. To be under sin is to be the slave of sin, under the influence of sin. But he is now saying sin will have no dominion over you. Why? Since you are not under law, but under grace. So just as being under sin, and the law, by the way, leads to more sin, being under grace is to be under an influence that breaks the slavery to sin. So Paul's under phrases are are that way. Uh, let me show you one more. Seven, I think it's seven fourteen. Yeah. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, what? Sold under sin, sin, under the influence. So when we're under sin, we're under the influence of it, and we need someone to deliver us. And when he delivers us, we become what? Under grace. And that grace transforms our lives. Now, I, I I baited some of you about under law. I'll just I'll just throw that out. I'll say something and move on without explaining it. Uh, where was it? Oh uh, it's in 614. I'm sorry. It, in Pauline theology, application of the law produces sin. That's what he means in this verse. To be under the law is to be because your flesh is corrupt, is to be under, even the law ends up promoting sin. That's Paul's theology of the law. People need to understand that. And he works that out in chapter 7 and 8. And so being under the law here, God's law is good, but I am carnal, sold under sin. And when the law came, when the commandment came, what did it do? It stirred up in me all kinds of sin. See? That's Pauline's distinctive, uh, uh, and the right way to understand the law. Uh, and so both of those are negative, to be under sin and to be under the law. In this verse, they're both negatives. They both influence you to practice more sin. Okay, And the only way out of that is to get under grace, which influences in the other direction. So that's what we mean by effectual grace. So, all right, let's go, go to page, well, it's not page three in your notes, but it's the next major heading, number seven. So we're going to now, is the effectual grace understanding biblical? I've been defending it some, but we're going to go now deeper into that. Do you have any, uh, a question or comment at, at this point? So, my question is uh, with respect to fruitless Christians. I'm sorry, say that a little louder. Fruitless Christians. Fruitless Christian. yes. That's where my question is going. So, if you have a Christian who is fruitless, but thinks that he or she is a Christian, how do we help them? Okay. I, I'm glad you're back. Hold your question. Before we're done, we do need to address that. So, So, on number seven there, is effectual grace the correct biblical understanding? So, go now, we're going to go to Romans 6, and we're going to spend quite a bit of time here. So, first we want to just get a proper understanding of Romans 6. So, we back up to verse 20 on um, Romans chapter 5, verse 20, and Paul has been talking about um, justification, and, and here's one of his statements. Now the law came in to increase the trespass. You know what? I'm going I'm to switch back over to New King James for a moment here. Bear with me. Okay. Moreover, the law entered that the offense might abound, but where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. Well. Wow. Praise God, right? <laughs> it doesn't matter how much we've sinned. Grace, grace is bigger than all our sin. Grace abound. See, we're on to grace now. This grace abounded much more so that as sin reigned in death, sin is powerful, isn't it? Yeah. Reigned in death. Sin is personified here as an unstoppable tyrant king that reigns in death and crushes to death everything in its path. As sin reigned in death, effectual grace, even so, what? Grace, what? Might reign through righteousness to eternal life. So, Again, this is influence. Sin reigns and has this powerful influence. Grace reigns more powerfully than sin. Effectual grace. See that? Now, Paul made an amazing statement there. Where, you know, where sin abounded, grace abounded much more. And now here comes the objection. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? Is that an Orchip question? It is, absolutely. Absolutely, that's why we're in this passage. (laughs) You see, Paul sees his objective. The the, the guy's saying, Paul, if you tell people where sin abounded, grace abounded much more, they're just going to go out and sin all the more. You're just going to encourage people to sin with your doctrine in Romans chapter 5. That they're justified, they're forgiven, and no matter how big their sins are, grace is bigger. If you teach that, well, let us sin that grace may abound. See, they're accusing, they're saying, Paul, you cannot be correct because you are going to encourage people to sin. What shall we say then? Shall we continue and grace may abound? Paul says, no, certainly not. How shall we who died to sin live any longer in it? So that's how he answers the objection. He goes, Wait a minute. You guys are not only forgiven and justified, Romans 5. Something else has happened to you. You've died to sin. Oh, see? It's more than forgiveness. Romans chapter 5, justification, forgiveness. But salvation in Christ, something else has happened. You've died to sin. And you can't answer his question, how shall shall we who died to sin live any, any longer in it? The answer is you can't. There's no yes answer to that. See, I mean... You know, died to chocolate. (laughs) Okay, If if you've died to chocolate, what that means is, is it has no more pull on you. See? You're dead to that thing. That thing has no more influence. So Paul is saying you've died to sin. You chose a rough one there. What's that? I chose a rough one. I chose... Yeah, none of us, I don't think, any of us are dead to chocolate, right? (laughs) And that's why I chose it, because there's this pool, right? But if you were dead to chocolate, that pool go is gone. And so that's Paul's argument. No, you can't continue in sin at Grace Mary Brown, because if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian, you've died to sin. Now he's going to explain that, but that's his that's his answer. Well, how, well then how did we die to sin? When did this happen? Well or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Oh. Therefore, what? We were buried with him through baptism into death, just that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also, look, should walk in newness of life. There's the new life. And I'm not, we're not going to go into a big, long discussion about what baptism means here, but it's the symbol. Baptism is the symbol of the spiritual reality of dying and rising with Christ. And what Paul is saying is, if we've died and risen with Christ, we've died to sin and we've risen with newness of life. That's what he's saying. How did we die to sin? Verses 5 through 7. He says it a second time. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him. That the body of sin might be done away with. Now listen to this. That we should no longer be slaves of sin. Ah, there it is. We're not only forgiven. We're united with Christ's death. And that has caused us to die to sin. Your old man is crucified with him. The body of sin might be done away with what? That we should no longer be slaves of sin. That's why we cannot go on sinning that grace may abound. We have been emancipated from slavery to sin. That's exactly what Jesus said. If the Son of Man, what, shall set you free, he says, you shall be free indeed. You shall really be free now, in John chapter 8, Jesus didn't say how he was going to do it. How did he do it? By going to the cross. That's how he did it. So when you read John chapter 8, and, and Jesus says, yeah, if the Son of Man set you free, you shall be free indeed, you think the cross. How is he going to do that? Right here. By dying, And us being crucified with him on the cross is how he's going to do that. In that, think about that. That's how he did it. Paul is explaining how why John chapter eight verse thirty works. So, so when did we die? Die to sin. Uh, The old man was was crucified. So, see Paul's reasoning here. Salvation's more than forgiveness. It includes these other aspects of Christ's work. You have them all, or you don't have any. Okay, so so that's a proper understanding of Romans six. I mean, there's more to it, but that for for our purpose, that's what we want. Now, can we go over like ten minutes tonight? <laughs> because I'd like to get through number eight. Um, Yeah, okay. So, there are misuses of Romans chapter 6 that we need to think about. And one of the misuses, I use this illustration, teaches this chapter and says, you must flip the switch before the saving effects described in Romans 6 operate. And this teaching sounds roughly like this. I'm just going to read, I'm going to read this paragraph to you. You must flip the switch before it works. Quote, okay, you are a Christian and your sins have been forgiven. And you are assured of going to heaven. But you are living a defeated life. You are not experiencing victory over sin. Now look here at Romans 6. It speaks of the body of sin being done away with. It speaks of living in newness of life. And it even says that sin will not have dominion over you. These are all the things that you need. How then can you get victory over sin described in this passage? The teaching goes astray when it answers that question. Either consciously or unconsciously, the teaching conditions the life-changing effects of union with Christ, described in verses 3 through 10, on doing the command in verse 11. Verse 11, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Okay, we are taught that there is all of this sanctifying power and blessing available to us, but it will not operate in your life until you flip the switch to turn it on. The power to change your life lies dormant and inactive until you... Reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive in Christ Jesus our Lord. In other words, this teaching puts a condition in there. Years ago, this teaching was associated with the defeated person doing some public act in a special service designated to help people flip the switch a dedication or a rededication service. Various names were used. People were counseled. Will you do verse 11? In other words, all that stuff I just described doesn't operate until you do verse 11. That's how this passage has been taught, and I'm sure it's still being taught that way to avoid the implications of what I've just taught. As oh, no, no, if you don't flip the switch you're still going to live in sin. See, in other words, they've conditioned all of the power that Romans 6 is describing for a transformed life, they've conditioned it on something we must do. Flip the switch. You must do this formula, okay? You must reckon yourself dead and all of these things. And all of a sudden, boom, you'll be victorious. It was called the victorious Christian living. There were conferences... (laughs) <laughs> okay, Sandy, not Kathy. Yeah, the Victoria and the Keswick movement, and and all of that. We're old enough. We're old enough to know that this was all going on in the seventies. Okay, you have to flip the switch in order to make it operate. Um, then suddenly, or the higher life movement—that was another expression that's been used. Now, however, this, this teaching mistakenly reads the command of verse 11 into verses 2 and 14 as conditions of the reality expressed in those verses. In other words, in verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? This teaching answers Paul's question, if you don't flip the switch, you will continue in sin and be defeated. But if you flip the switch, you will experience that you are dead to sin and suddenly you will be free. Suddenly you will be victorious. What this teaching fails to recognize by conditioning the answer to Paul's question in verse 2 Is they have undermined his entire argument. He says, You can't do this. You can't continue to live in sin. You cannot, if you've died to sin, unless you reckon yourselves dead, you can no longer live in it. There's no condition in this statement. You see what I'm saying? they're conditioning the effectiveness of that statement based on verse 11 they're saying if you don't do verse 11 verse 2 there's an answer you can continue in sin because you haven't done verse 11 so it's a result not a condition that absolutely verse 2 is an indicative it's a result it's something that has happened and so this flip the switch approach to Roman 6 is undermining verse, undermining his whole argument. Okay. And the 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 same problem is, you see, let, let me let me read my notes here. What this teaching fails to recognize is by conditioning the answer to Paul's question in verse 2, they have undermined his entire argument. The objector's charge is correct after all. There is a way for Christians to continue in sin that grace may abound. Those who don't flip the switch will live a defeated life. That's undermining his whole argument against the objector in verse two. Okay. Now, the, the the teachings doing the same thing to verse fourteen. Okay, verse fourteen, which perfectly agrees with the indicative of verse two, doesn't it? You see that? Verse 2 and verse 14 are bookends to the argument. Verse 14, what? This is a conclusion now. For sin will not have dominion over you. That's not a command. That's an indicative, that's a description. It will not have command over you. Why? Because you flipped the switch? No. (laughs) It will not have dominion over you because what? You are not under law but under grace. There's no conditional in verse 2 or 14 and you can't insert a switch. You can't insert a condition in here based on what we do. These are works of Christ that have been done to us. When he went up on that cross, we were crucified with him. It was done to us and for us. Praise God, right? So, you, you can't... That's how I'm just teaching you what I initially probably taught when I was first conversion. So, no, it's a strong argument in Romans 6. So... So, doctrinally, this thinking, this thinking, the -the flip-the-switch thinking doctrinally, it it has failed to understand Paul's argument and it undermines his argument. I already said that. The objector's objector's charge is left standing. The gospel can lead to non-lordship salvation. With the switch theology, then the gospel can lead to the non-lordship salvation. Uh, So, the gospel call okay. Now I now let me caution with this balance here a little bit. I'm not saying that it's not beneficial to do verse eleven. We need to do verse eleven. Okay, likewise you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. We need to do that. We need to think through this. You see, what he's saying is think through what I've told you. You've been crucified with Christ, that your body of sin, you've been emancipated from slavery to sin. Realize who you are. Don't lose sight of that. And that's all good. That's this, this, this is a root of real biblical sanctification is in this passage. And we do need to further understand our baptism is trying to help us understand we died with him. And we rose with him in newness of life. And so I'm not saying we aren't to do this. And and you see, therefore, verses 12 and 13 do not let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lust. This is not perfectionism. Being being freed from the slavery to sin doesn't mean we are still going to sin but we are going to overcome. <laughs> we are going to engage the battle, okay? And we're going to follow Christ instead of going the wrong direction. Okay, so, uh, so I, I, we're not doing all of Romans 6, but these things are still very valid. They are things for us to do, but they're not a switch that's going to turn on and off the power of the cross in our lives. See, we're talking about the power of the cross here. We're crucified with Him. That's the power of the cross. And this switch does not turn that on and off. Okay, That's on. Once we're united with Christ, once we believe in Christ, all the power of Christ is on in our lives. And we can preach, we can preach that kind of gospel to people. Christ will change your life. Okay? It doesn't matter where you are or where you've been. Jesus, crucified and risen, will transform your life and put us in the right direction. So that what? Therefore, look at this now, you see. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. You see, before being crucified with Christ, we're powerless. Sin comes knocking, hey, I'm all in. (laughs) Okay. I'm all in. No, now sin comes knocking. Bam! Slam the door. I don't want, I don't want you. (laughs) See, that's the change. And so now we're no longer slaves. We, we begin to have the power to say no to sin. We don't always do that. But before we were converted, we never could do that. <laughs> we never could really say no to sin without Christ. Now that we're, now that we're converted, now that we're in Christ, we have, this is a command we need to obey. We now have the power. Do not let sin reign in your mortal life that you should obey it lust. Do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin. Yeah, I'm not going to present my mind to any more of that filth. Okay? Yeah. I got to turn the TV off. Okay? No, I got to present my mind to righteousness now. Okay? That's what happens when people get converted. Do not present your members okay? But, this is so beautiful, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. See that? I didn't do the resurrection part about transformation of life, but it's here also in Romans 6. We've been risen with him to newness of life. Yeah, and here it is. You see, present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead. It's like, Lord, you've resurrected me. You've given me a new life. I'm alive from the dead. That's all your grace that has done this. Present yourselves to God as being alive. We should get up in the morning. We should wake up and think about that in the morning. And what? And your members as instruments of righteousness to God. Your mind, everything you have. What's the motive for doing that? Because sin will not have dominion over you, you can win. You can go in this direction and become more than a conqueror. There's going to be battles and all of that, but you. But through Him, you can. This is a. This is the gospel. The gospel doesn't end with forgiveness only. So. The switch is on. <laughs> okay? So we better stop there. Yeah. Yeah, let's stop there. Any any comments or, or questions? We'll get the microphone back. Oh, you got it. <laughs> um, I would just like to encourage others um, regarding the last comments there about victory. Um, the battle's for a long time, I was strictly counting losses and victories, and that was discouraging. You were counting them? I was just counting them. Keeping track of them? Keeping track. <laughs> how, many, count, how, how many times did I fall into this sin? How, how many times <laughs> did I stand up for the gospel? And uh, the point was, I thought I was abiding and looking to Christ, and I, I don't um. think I was when i stopped counting and just yeah. abided in christ yeah and stopped looking downward and looked upward yeah the victories and losses didn't matter amen yeah and 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 in the larger argument of romans 6 7 and 8 it, it the, the larger argument is re- is really wonderful you know we we we're, we're justified and we're in union with Christ, so we're going to be sanctified. Justification is completed. Obviously, the sanctification part here is a process, okay? We're forgiven, we're, we're justified, we're adopted. That is absolutely certain. We cannot be unjustified. We cannot be unadopted. You see, those are, we would use the term, those are positional changes. Those are legal changes. Being justified in God's court of justice doesn't change us. It doesn't make us more holy or not. What it does is, it makes us right in the courtroom. It makes us righteous in God's sight that he won't condemn us. Justification is the opposite of condemnation. And so we're justified, so therefore what? There's no condemnation. So we're in a secure place. The wrath of God will have nothing to do with us because we're justified. And that can never change. You can't be unjustified. Not only that, we're adopted. That's legal. We're His children. He's our Father. He's adopted us. That cannot change. Okay? On top of that, Romans 6 and part of Romans 8, we're beginning to be sanctified. We're beginning to be changed. And made holy. Now that's a process that does affect us, you see. Justification and adoption doesn't change what I am. Union with Christ's death changes what I am, begins to renew me, you see. My body of sin is done away with. So the benefits of our salvation are both positional, done once and forever, never to be repeated justification, adoption, and regeneration, by the way. Done, once for all, never to be repeated. You're justified, you're adopted, you're born again. Those are done, never to be repeated. If you're a believer in Christ, you're secure in those. Sanctification, that's a process. Okay. And all of that's so, in the Romans. So those that believe in this flip-the-switch yeah. theology, do they believe sanctification is a one-and-done, one-time thing? At times they depend. It, it, yeah, it's a realistic thing. Like you do this thing, and suddenly, boom, you're on this high spiritual level, and you're just free of it all. Yeah, they, that definitely is the higher Christian life. You've gotten victory, uh, and then what usually what happens is you end up stumbling again. It, it misrepresents uh, Christian experience. I, I think Christian experience is in this chapter here. You're going to have to not let sin. You're going to have to learn to say no to sin in your life. You now have the power. You now have the knowledge. You're in union with Christ. But now you've got to say no. You're going to have to learn to say no. And, and the Lord is going to so work in your life that you begin obeying these commands and you begin saying no. And, and so there's not this instant dramatic um, second work of grace. How many of you had heard that expression, second work of grace? Well, what you're talking about, um, Heidi, is like these second works of grace, like the first work of grace gets you, gets you forgiven and justified, but that doesn't get you changed. So now you need a second work of grace. I don't agree with this theology, but there's a lot of groups that have different second works of grace. This higher life movement was like that. you got to flip the switch. That's the second grace. Pentecostal churches often have what? You need to get the baptism. You need the second work of grace. you got forgiveness, but the second work of grace is you need to have the baptism of the Spirit. And now suddenly everything's new or even if you don't if you don't like being Pentecostal well you, what I was taught was your second work of grace was to be filled with the Holy Spirit. you prayed for forgiveness and everything, but if you're leading a carnal, defeated life, well, you can look just like an unbeliever, but what you need to do now is you need to get filled with the spirit and and you do that uh, there's a bunch more uh, second works of grace well here 's one. You you know you, you accepted Jesus as Savior and that got you forgiven and you're going to go to heaven, but now you need to take another step and you need to accept him as Lord. You see, you have Jesus as Savior, but you don't have him as Lord. So now you need to bow down or go full forward again and dedicate and, and you need to accept Jesus as Lord. So the, the, all of these second, second works of grace And the reason all of that is happening is because they have a shrunken understanding of effectual grace. One work of grace is enough because it brings all of this in. See? And, uh, yeah, I mean, I I have known people where, you know, they've they've gone forward and they've rededicated themselves, you know, like ten times. And it's sad because because they want to do better. You know, I mean, that's not a bad thing. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. But but it does kind of encourage kind of the one and done. Now, if I just do this, I'm not going to have to do the daily battle of following Christ. I'm not going to have to take up my cross. What was the word he put in there? Daily, Daily, right? What did Jesus say? Take up your cross. What? Daily. Daily. Now, that's true Christian experience, not, not a one and done. Okay, well, we went till 20 after we need to stop. Does that answer your question, Heidi? Okay. You have a question? Okay, Rochelle, it's your fault if we stay here this late. It's actually my fault. Is, is it possible that you can believe then after a while, you don't believe again. Is it possible? No, no, it's not. Not genuinely. That would not be genuine faith initially. Yeah, you know, there's even a text that uses that expression uh, in Luke. Let me—I have it here. Believe for a while. See, that's the non-saving faith. Luke eight thirteen is the parable of the soils. See, but the, but the ones on the rock, the seed that fell on the rock, are those when they hear, receive the word with joy, and these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation they fall away. So, so it's possible. Now it, it, you can it, believe, after uh, afterwards you don't believe again. Yeah, but what we're saying here, Rochelle, is there's there, there is... Non saving, there's two categories of belief. There, there is a category of belief that isn't saving faith. And there's this real faith. And the only way you can tell them apart is by the evidence. Does that still thinking through that? Yeah, I'm thinking. Okay. Anybody else? All right. David, why don't you lead us in prayer? Lord, um, <clears throat> thank you, Lord, for doing what the law cannot do, Father. It was not only give us a not guilty verdict, but you also give us the desire to, to follow you, Father, and to you give us information. Um, like what Paul said, for the love of Christ compels us, Lord. May the act of the greatest love the pay on the cross. The greatest gift. Of, his, of his, He gave himself all for us. May that always be in our minds so that it can motivate us and be compelled, Lord, by your grace to continue to live for your glory. Also, Lord, we ask you, Lord, to give us wisdom so that we could mortify our sins, Lord, so that we can live a life that truly pleases you. We ask all this in the name of your name, Jesus. Amen.